Amen. Thank you, Lauren. And what a great day it is to be here. Good morning, Fonder Church. My name is Daniel Wagner. I'm the executive pastor of ministry here. Excited to be here in the 11 o'clock service. Uh, Robert will be back with us next week. And if you're here for the first time in a while, we're glad you're here. If you're here for the first time in a couple of weeks, then here we are in a series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a pretty slow walk for us as we began the year in one series about life together, the importance of people around us. And here in the second series, walking through this ancient book with timeless wisdom. It's easy for us to look at the Bible and see one big book, which is really a collection of books, and think, man, that was cool for them then, but what about me now? And today, I'd like to challenge you to think about how a word that we need and a word that a lot of us seek could be very timely and true for us today as we continue this. To give you some context on Corinth, if this is your first week, it was a power-obsessed culture with the people that had not been there for very long, all trying to climb to be at the top of the totem pole. A lot of jockeying for position, a lot of power and prestige, a lot of posturing. And they were obsessed with this concept of knowledge. There was a lot of that in Greco-Roman culture. People wanted to know and be in the know. And honestly, that's not too dissimilar from where we are today. If you're in a small group, I wrote the guide this week, and one of the first questions for the group to kind of connect over and make fun of your people that are cripplingly type A and have no room for spontaneity, the question is, when you go on a trip or you go to an event, how much information do you need to know ahead of time? Or are you kind of a go-with-the-flow type person? Even if you are a go-with-the-flow type person, usually people want to know something about the things that are happening, and you're no different in your life, and we find that there's not much difference in Corinth. Not necessarily that they're going on a trip, but they're going on a journey as we all go on the journey of life. So how can we find what we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you'll turn there in your Bible, either the Bible you brought with you or maybe a Bible in front of you. If not, there will be the scripture on the screen. How do we find this elusive thing that we see woven all throughout scripture that Paul writes here to sort of culminate this section about why he came in not with fancy speech, words of eloquent wisdom that he preached Jesus Christ crucified. In a culture obsessed with knowledge, Paul would point to wisdom. And it's easy for us to think that knowledge and wisdom are kind of opposed to each other in the scripture. And that's not necessarily true, but to boil it down to brass tacks, which I really don't want to do, but I will for the sake of our conversation today, knowledge is kind of know what, wisdom is know how. Knowledge can answer questions like how and when, but not who and why. That comes from wisdom. And we see, as we'll see today, that there's a unique gifting of wisdom, a unique offering of wisdom, that's given to the Christian as we follow in the way of Jesus. So as you're here in 1 Corinthians chapter two, I'll read us through, but before I tell you what I'm gonna tell you, I wanna tell you what I'm gonna tell you. That's what they tell you to do when you learn how to do this. The first thing we'll look at is true and false wisdom. The second is the glory of wisdom. And the third is the extension of wisdom. But I'll get to the first section here, true and false wisdom. We're picking up in verse six of 1 Corinthians chapter two. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom although it's not a wisdom of this age or of any rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before our ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord 
of glory. So we see this concept here that Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, these people here who are the leaders of the day, both the rhetoric, the thought leaders of the day and the political leaders of the, of the day, they'll say, we are learned. We have this knowledge. We have this way to navigate through life. And Paul's writing to a group of people who find themselves torn in between the world and the way of Jesus, much as we find ourselves today. So the rulers of the world, the people that are in political power and power in circles of influence, and then the people of the church who would be spirit-led, spirit-filled people. There's this tension here, and Paul would say, their way is not the way. Instead, I'll point you to a new way. But again, underneath all of this, we find this Greco-Roman culture obsessed with knowledge. And like us, you probably want to be people that are in the know and in the loop. We find ourselves fascinated, just as cultural trends right now, with things like conspiracy theories, right? How many people love a good conspiracy theory? Please don't raise your hand. All right, cool. So, we find people who they want to know, right? What's it really all about? We find uh, a phenomenon. I'm glad that there's language for it because it's a danger for a lot of people. Hard to put your finger on exactly what it is because it's elusive in language, in nature. But this concept of gaslighting, right? You hear a lot of that in uh, the social media space and in books that are being written. It's the perception of making people feel like they don't really know what's going on. And then one thing that I'll never be able to wrap my mind around, no matter how many times you tell me, is our obsession with whodunit things like serial killer shows and true crime documentaries. Never be able to understand that, and I found a tweet that sums this spirit up for me. It's weird how women, this is a female comedian who wrote this, myself included, are obsessed with true crime shows considering we're typically the victims. That's like if chickens loved watching Top Chef. You'll never be able to convince me that it's a normal thing to do to watch how people get killed, unless you're trying to learn how to do it. I don't know what the story is, so like, why are you doing that? But here's what I want to say is we're, we're obsessed with being in the know. We want to know here in our culture, and that was the same for the church in Corinth. And Paul writes to them, hey, being in the know is good, but there's a deeper way of wisdom that's better. And we find that out, right, that there's a limit to worldly wisdom. Like we know there's only so far that wisdom can take you, only so many things that tips and tricks and knowledge through books and the kind exchanges of people, the way that we can learn in the world, that there's got to be a deeper way because what we have our hands on just isn't really very substantial often. One limit to worldly wisdom is just time. We're bound by what we know now. Like up to this point in history, we have what we have. The things that will develop will be developed. Scientific methods that will develop in the future, cure for diseases, the way that we find things about uh, the age of the earth or how to grow plants better. I don't know. Any of those things. We don't know what we don't know today. So we're bound by time. That's both the ability for us to learn in time and around time and also your own time. You've got a fixed amount of hours in the day and you can only spend those doing the things that you can spend. So this bloodthirsty quest for acquiring knowledge, it's got some limits on it. The second is senses, that we're limited by our senses, what we can see and touch and smell and hear and taste. I think I did all five. We're limited by what is in front of us and, and what we beyond that have access to, that we can only learn and only acquire what we can get our hands on, both through traditional methods of learning, like reading books, and then just what we can experience and what our society can teach us and the part of the world and civilization we live in, the people we have in proximity to us, we find that we're limited in worldly wisdom and this acquisition of knowledge that we would find. I want to show you a picture of the Library of Congress. I've never been inside the Library of Congress. It's a big building, and in that book, in that building, I'm sorry, there are about 18 million books that have been published in the English language that are there. 
So if you set out on a quest and said, I want to acquire all knowledge on everything, maybe you wouldn't have to read every single book, right? You're going to read two biographies about the same person. Maybe, maybe not. Who's to say? This is your imaginary journey. But regardless, you have about 18 million books to continue to chew through, so congratulations. And then if we just decide from today forward, uh, books will be published at the same rate in the English language. There are about 200,000 books that will be published over uh, the next year. So if you take that and you multiply that by 50, I think that's the math, then you're looking at about 28 million books to read. So if you're on the journey to acquire all knowledge, then you needed to start yesterday because there you go. So what we see here is that there are limits to our human knowledge, our limits to our learning, but what happens when we see that there's a deeper thing that the Lord would offer us, that Paul would point us to here, that we know is true, the way of wisdom, that would give us counsel between one or two or three or four or 15 things when we're faced with choices, but then wisdom that would permeate and influence our life so that we might live a life of peace, a life of purpose, a life of fulfillment, a life of wisdom. So what do we see in this? Well, we see right out of the gate in verse six that wisdom is given to those that are mature, mature. And that's a fascinating concept to think about here in church. You may be sitting there and go, man, Daniel, I don't know if I would call myself spiritually mature. I've only been at this Christian thing for a few years. I've only been back in church for a little while. I don't know that I do have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. So why would I say that I'm mature in spirit? Paul writes this here, it's beautiful to contrast the rulers of the age and the people who claim that they were the keepers of this knowledge. Robert's pointed to these parties over the last few weeks called sophists. That's after the, the Greek word Sophia for wisdom. So these are the people who would say, we hold wisdom. We hold intellect. We hold the greater way. And the church in Corinth would see these people pulling them and pushing them to things that were away from the way that Jesus would call them to live their life. So they would say, are you really someone who would keep true wisdom, pure wisdom? But we see that God would give wisdom here to the mature now, mature, again, is interesting because you might find yourselves in different parts of a journey. I have a small child at home, uh, Stell's three years old, three and some change. And when Carly and I are doing uh, just things around the house and it's time to pray, you know, bedtime, meals, that kind of thing, every now and then I'll kind of poke to the child and say, do you want to pray? Because, like, let's face it, when kids pray, that's super cute. But I have a prayer-averse child. I don't know if that means that I'm a clergy. I don't think I'm going to lose my job over it. But she'll look at me sometimes and she'll go, I can't pray, I'm too little. And that's cute, right? Aw, but how many of us would say, I can't blank, I'm too blank, right? Like, I can't, I can't really glean wisdom from God's word because I don't know how to read the Bible for myself. I don't really know how to seek him in prayer because I, I, I'm just scared to, to go to him in a way of intimacy. And we'll get there. The next thing we see is the nature of wisdom. What is this wisdom? Is it this higher learning that you can acquire on your own through the right set of talking heads? No, the scripture would tell us that it's secret and hidden, that it's secret and hidden. And as we read an English Bible here today, knowing that the New Testament was written in the Greek language, this concept here of secret and hidden, this is a good translation, but it really implies this concept of a secret hidden inside of a mystery. It's a thing within a thing. It's so bound up that there's no way that we could find it unless someone initiated it with us. Someone extended this wisdom to us. 
It's fascinating. We live in a world now where if you're a podcast person like I am, I feel like every 18th podcast is some serial killer who got away and lives in rural Montana and then two 40-year-old white women with a podcast find him and they bring him back. And they, they're just obsessed with this knowledge and with seeking this knowledge and a mystery and solving a mystery. But that's not the nature here of this secret and hidden thing. Regardless of your intellect, regardless of your access, regardless of your social power and prestige, this deeper wisdom is reserved only for some. And we see wisdom and timing. Where's the timing of this wisdom? Where's it come from? Where's it going? We find that there in verse 7, that it was given before the ages, that this wisdom is ancient. That would have been appealing to a Greco-Roman world. They wanted to know the secret things that existed before the foundations of the earth. And even for us, perhaps people that are driven to empirical data, we want things to make sense. We want to know that the thing that we would hitch our wagon to is going to be the thing that's real and the things that last. Before the ages, sounds like a pretty safe bet. That there's a way of living, a way of living that's different because it's been around since before the ages. And that it would produce something that would be for our glory. Remember, we don't want to be out of the loop. We don't want to be left out to dry. We want to be in the know. This invites us to the most inside of inside things. So I want to point to true and false wisdom and within true wisdom to the glory of wisdom. That wisdom is extended to us as we would see there. That wisdom is something that's different from what we can find in the world, not like the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. There's a shelf life for them and for their time and power. But what could we see, is there a wisdom that's glorious, weighty, otherworldly, set apart? We find that in verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So what do we see here? Well, this is a paraphrase. In your Bible, it may be set apart in a little thing. It's uh, a part of Isaiah 64 that Paul pulled out and he wrote here. Isaiah 64 is a passage when Isaiah's sort of beginning to land the plane in what's been written in the book. God's people are in a season of great suffering. They're longing for God to come and to make all things right. And they wonder how it's going to happen. And Isaiah writes, as he does in most of the book, in this section, this concept of the things that God would have around the corner for you are greater than the things that you could draw up. And here's what's fascinating here is Paul would pull that out of the Old Testament and he would put it here in a section on wisdom and he would say, what, what's the what? That's the question we're asking here, right? What no eyes seen? What no ear has heard? What the heart of man has not imagined? What God has prepared for those who love him is the cross. It's Jesus's plan for salvation. God's plan for salvation from before the foundations of time for our good and for our glory going forward. We find this deeper way of wisdom extended to us in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. Paul says to walk in wisdom, to choose wisdom, to experience wisdom, both in the moment and for all the days of your life, is to see and behold and believe in Jesus. And this offers for us 
a different type of experience. That glory is not just something that we can see and go, it would be wise for me to choose glory, but we can step into glory and experience it. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity would write about different types of life and different experiences um, based on senses and the way they can be perceived in living beings. He writes about three different types of life, and this is science from the 1950s, so if this isn't wrong, then plenty of doctors in here, you guys could help me. But the first thing he writes about is a plant, and he would say a plant has some senses. It has sensitivity to the sun, it has some sensitivity to water, you can see the way that roots, I'm not agricultural enough, grow to find sources of water, and that some plants will slowly rotate themselves towards the sun whenever they have a window, if they're in an area that's really crowded, that they have some ability to have sensation in them, they have senses, and because of that they experience a quality of life. And the second thing that he writes about are animals. That animals have what we have, the five senses that I listed off earlier and I dare not try to repeat again because I might get them all wrong. They can have the ability to pick up things that are happening around them in a fuller way than a plant, but because of some limited intellectual capacity, there's not as much for them to experience. Now, your dog might smell better than you and you're on a bat. I hope you don't have a pet bat. My child wants one, but that's a different story completely. Can hear better than you. I don't know what the story is, but uh, you, because you're a human, can experience all those things in a fuller sense. So that's what Lewis writes as he says, just as plants and just as animals have the ability to respond to and perceive some things, they have a sense that they can experience life. We as people have a richer sense that we can experience life because we have a higher aptitude, a higher capacity. And this is the same for glory. And because it's the same for glory, it's the same for wisdom. This is what Paul would write here, that we, in our limited faculties, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined, we could never draw up the timely and eternally beautiful sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That God would see your deepest need even after we betrayed him and that he would die in our place and give us an abundant life to walk in, all the days of our life, and an eternal glory to share with him at the end of our days. No one could have drawn that up. But Paul doesn't just link it to salvation, he links it to wisdom. Yes, Daniel, thank you for holding up the value of my salvation today. How does that affect my wisdom? Well, that's what Paul writes here. We're invited in. There's an intimacy to glory. I think about 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we all with unveiled face, because we now can see God, because now we can see who he is through the person of Jesus, through things like scripture, through things like the influence of the Holy Spirit in us that he's gifted us. We can see God, and as we see him and behold him with unveiled face, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. As we become to look like him, we walk in wisdom. As we learn his priorities for our lives, we walk in wisdom. As we see not just the do's and the don'ts, but the way that God would call us into fullness, we experience wisdom. You see, as we behold him, we become like him. As we behold him, we become like him. And you guys have probably seen this go the other way in your life. Right there, uh, two Psalms, and Psalm 118 and Psalm 135, and there are sections in both of those that talk about how the people 
had forsaken God and they had run to idols and they began to look like their idols. They began to do the things that their idols did. They began to practice the things that their idols did. And for all of us, we have an issue with idolatry. We make Jesus little and we make our things big. And you might be chasing after good things, but they're not God himself. The things you may be giving your time to and prioritizing that are things that have got a hold on your heart, they may be fine things, but they're not the ultimate person of faith that we must elevate in us. So we see that as we behold him, we become like him. We know how that works against us in Christian growth, but how many times are you letting that work for you in Christian growth? How many times are you elevating Jesus in your day-to-day? Oh, I've got a decision between one or two or three or five things. How can I honor Christ the most? How can I know Jesus the best? Where will God receive the most glory in my decision? Do you see how glory and wisdom hold hands here in the Christian life? As we would place Jesus at the center and he would transform us, we walk in the way of wisdom. We walk in the way of wisdom. The last thing I want to point to here is the extension of wisdom. The wisdom is extended to us and it's extended through us. I had to give you a compound thing here. I just couldn't help myself. Wisdom is extended to us. Remember, it's a secret hidden in a mystery. We could never work our way to God. All other faiths say, I am God, you come here. Only the true faith says, I am God and I've come to you, right? We could never work our way there. We could never work our way to perfect wisdom in Jesus. So he gives it to us and then it flows through us to others. We'll pick up in 10 again. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We see wisdom as this extended thing and as this thing that would shape the way that we would live, would shape the way that we make decisions, that we would perceive and be perceived differently through the invitation and the gift of the Spirit. And even as we perceive and are perceived, there are three things I want us to look at as we pursue wisdom together. The first is this, that pursuing wisdom challenges our natural tendencies our natural tendencies. You see here in that section we read that there's a reference to a natural person, that the natural person would not be able to interpret the things of God and they would appear to him as folly. We don't use folly very much in society today, but folly is essentially this, not just different, but dumb. That they would look at the way that we would do things in the Christian life, the way that you would prioritize, the way you spend your money, Right, that you would recognize that God has entrusted you with money and you've been blessed to be a blessing. The way that you would sacrifice 
to love and serve your family, the way that you would prioritize, maybe not your own preferences, but the preferences of someone else, so that you can honor and love your neighbor. People who don't have the Spirit of God would look at people who do have the Spirit of God and go, that's not just different, that's dumb. You're doing this thing wrong. And that's the spirit we see here, that a natural person, at the Greek here is um, psychikos, it's where we get psyche from, where we get, um, where we get most of our terms about people in a mental state. And we would find here that there's this uh, kind of psychotic underpinning to this, that it's people who are in an unaffected spiritual state. The concept that Lewis wrote about earlier, that people who would walk against God's wisdom, that would pursue only earthly knowledge, they would find themselves as kind of left out to dry. They're an inferior version of what they could be because the Spirit of God has not transformed them by the renewing of their mind that we find in Romans 12. And for you, man, it can be hard to push back against natural tendencies. Like, let me just be vulnerable with you for a moment. I think a lot of us uh, are in the room. We feel like we've had a degree of disappointment in our life when it comes to relationships with people. So it can be tempting for us to think, hey, I'm going to keep you at arm's length, right? You're a friend, but you may leave me one day, right? I know we're family, but I mean, you know, are we really family? I'm going to keep you at arm's length. And that would have been a world that the Corinthians would have been very familiar with. I want to read you a passage from Epictetus. He was a, a Stoic philosopher that was born a couple of years before the letter to the Corinthians was written. So as the church in Corinth lived this letter out, they would have been familiar with teachings kind of like this. He would write this about the way that a natural person should operate and that that would be wisdom. In this too, when you kiss your child or your brother or your friend, never give way entirely to your affections. Don't give yourself too much to that person, nor free reign to your imagination, but curb it and restrain it. Like those who stand behind generals when they ride in triumph and they remind them that they are just mere mortal men. What harm is there while you're kissing your child to murmur softly, oh, tomorrow you will die. We don't really put that stuff on Hallmark cards, right? That uh, may not be how we feel like we live naturally in pop culture, but maybe that's you. This concept here about mere mortal men is like the anti-hype men. You know, hype men were a big deal in rap a couple years ago. Now all the rappers just like shout their own name, which is strange, but they are here and uh, we see it's like anti-hype men that these people are like, hey bro, great W there, but like you're gonna die soon. It's this concept that we would not give ourselves fully to our life, right? That by insulating ourselves and holding a little bit back that we can free ourselves from pain and that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to choose to go the extra mile. It's to lay your life down for your friend. So we see that wisdom sometimes in following Jesus feels so unwise to us in our natural tendencies. The second thing that pursuing wisdom invites, it's our deepest scrutiny. And I picked scrutiny on purpose because I'm, I'm kind of a, I don't know, scrutinizing personality, I guess. I, I want to see things and understand how they work. I don't want to hear something. I want to get in there and I want to be able to understand, is this really the way? Is this really the thing? I don't know. And that's what the business of scrutiny is. But here's the thing that we find in the scripture is that pursuing wisdom invites our deepest scrutiny. We find here that the spirit of God searches everything, even the depths of God. It talks about how the only person who can really know themselves is a person. You think about your inside thoughts, the private conversations you have with yourself, the secret desires, dreams, and ambitions that you have that you might not share with someone else, your motivations for acting a certain way. Well, here's the thing. The Spirit of God can help you interpret those, and the Spirit of God can help you interpret God himself. 
You can learn what God's like. You can walk in wisdom because you learn his character. What would Jesus do becomes more than just a sentence. It becomes a mindset for us that we could say, ah, Lord, I know how you would act in this moment. I know what you would have for me. I've been here before. I know how to respond under this pressure. Or I know what you would have me do here. That's wisdom, skillful living that comes from us conforming ourselves to Jesus. I love the concept of depths here, that it searches the depths of God. Whenever you think about depths, I usually think about a pool, right? And a pool has a shallow end and a deep end, or at least most pools have a shallow end and a deep end. Some people, they're just like, there to drown. I don't know what that's about. But I have a small child again that I mentioned earlier. And uh, like most small children, she's attracted to the concept of water, but then terrified when she gets in the water. And like any good parents uh, who are going to be around water a little bit, like Carly and I are, we put them in, put her in this thing that's uh, infant swim rescue, I think is what it's called. And it's essentially like drowning practice. They take your kid and they teach them how to not drown. And it looks like torture. Uh, Stella, my child, y'all pray for me, please. Desperately, I need wisdom she was asked not to come back. Like, we didn't just get kicked out. We got Mississippi kicked out. Like, y'all don't have to come back. Like, it's good. She's fine. But anyway, so all that to say, depths, right? A concept of depths can be a good thing and a bad thing, depending on whether or not you're willing to step into it. And some of you, in maturity, you may not feel like you're ready for the deep end of the Christian life. And let me tell you that you are. You can progressively work your way into wisdom, into more infinite knowledge of Jesus. He invites you to do so. The Spirit not only searches you, but it allows you to search who God is, his will, and his ways. There's a quote that I loved connected to pools that goes like this. The knowledge of God is a pool, not too deep a toddler can wade in, but so deep a scholar could never reach its depths. That God invites us, he invites you, regardless of how far away you feel, how immature you feel in the faith, to pursue him. He invites you in. And that as we are transformed, as we go more and more to the deep end, we can do this because we have the mind of Christ. This is not Jesus' brain in a jar by your bedside. It's not an instrument for logic. It's a mindset. That as we perceive the world, we can know how the world works because we have the mind of the one who made the world. He gives us an invitation to see the way that things should be, to long for a kingdom that we see now in part, but one day we'll see gloriously in full and the friction that that creates in your life as you seek how to follow him and be obedient and fight against natural tendencies. Where you get it right, that's wisdom, the way of wisdom. So to comfort you, perhaps, because you hear a sermon about wisdom and you think, man, I got all these decisions and I don't know which one to pick. I think about all the things that I've done that are unwise and you can feel shame in a moment like this. I want to encourage you that pursuing wisdom is a progressive journey. That as he invites you in in relationship, as you see and behold his glory, and as you wade from one end to the pool to the other, that wisdom is a progressive journey. And it's a journey he invites us into. I love this concept that these are things freely given to us by God. Not like the sophists who would want you to get behind them and pay them money to hear the secret knowledge that they have. It's freely given by the Lord. 
who paid far too high a price for you to leave him on a shelf and pick up the phone every now and then when you can't get yourself out of trouble on your own. Far too high a price for a long-distance relationship. But these things that are freely given to you, that you will find wisdom, that you'll walk in wisdom as you behold the person of Jesus and you become like him. I want to invite you to stand and invite the band back up. And as we do, I want to put a picture on the screen of uh, an airplane. This is an actual picture of a flight that happened. Uh, This was New Zealand Airlines 901. And in 1979, they did what they had usually done, which was take these commercial flights, really tourist flights, from New Zealand to Antarctica, to Ross Island, kind of tucked away in a part of Antarctica right there. And this was not quite a booze cruise, but kind of a booze cruise in the sky. It was a lot of people who were going to enjoy the scenery. And the people who were, these pilots, had taken this trip dozens of times. So much so they'd gotten very familiar and what were typical aviation laws, they sort of broke routinely. But it became a part of what you did. You took the turn here, took the turn there, you descended at this part so that people could get the best view. And what you would find here that differentiated this flight in 1979 from all the other ones is that this mountain, Mount Erebus, had always been there. No one parked a volcano there on this trip, but this flight ultimately resulted in a crash. 257 people killed. One of the greatest peacetime losses of life in New Zealand's history. And what we find here from these experienced pilots who had been here and done this trip time and time again, it was muscle memory for them at this point, they were off course. See, the day before, the coordinates were changed and they punched them into their automatic system that would take them to a destination. And uh, at the moments where they corrected it manually, they let go and they went back. But what we would find here on the right was their actual path that they took into the side of Mount Erebus. And on the left was where they thought they were. Things that they had done, moments that had felt familiar, they couldn't see because of a, a phenomenon called sector whiteout. And it was essentially that they couldn't see the mountain or anything on either side because they thought that they were looking at an ice shelf off to the distance because of the weather there in Antarctica. Why am I telling you this? Not so that you have a, you know, excuse not to go to Antarctica, but I'm telling you this so that you can see what we should do. What Paul writes here as the true way of wisdom, it's having Jesus as the fixed point of your life that to walk in wisdom, to experience the fullness of life, to know what to do in the seasons where you're pressed, where you have so many things before you and you wonder, how do I be faithful here? It's to see Jesus as your destination, that the wisdom that he extends to us through the cross, through the crucified life as we follow him, it is from before the ages and it's for our glory that as we follow him, the kingdom is built here. We'll be with him one day and we walk in wisdom in the meantime. So Lord, as we pray, we do pray that we fix our eyes on you. Lord, as the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who's gone before, the one who's made a way, Lord, we thank you that it is easy for us to follow on your way. God, it's not easy in terms of our effort. It can often feel like we're being pulled between two worlds. But Lord, as we hear a word on wisdom, 
Lord, would we see that to follow you, Lord, it is wisdom. Well, the most wise decision we can make with our life is to see you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, the most wise way we can live on the other side of that decision, God, it's that we would step and step follow you. That we would see the price you paid to give us more than just an example, Lord, would we never reduce you to just a great life lived. But would we see you as the living God who seeks intimacy and friendship with us. God, would we recognize our dependency on you in all seasons, not just when we have a tough call, not just when we feel like we need it, but Lord, would we walk with you and ask for wisdom all the days of our life? We see that as a promise in scripture that anyone who would ask for wisdom, God, you would give it to them generously without withholding. So Lord, for friends in the room today that are squeezed by decisions and pressures in life, they feel tugged in between so many things. Lord, would they look at you and see what you would have for them? And God, walk in wisdom as they pursue you. The wisdom would be the fruit of our life and our living as we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, longing to see more of your glory here. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined. Lord, your cross that you've given us. So Lord, as we come to the table and we take the Lord's Supper, communion with you, would we come open-handed? God, some of us need direction. We need wisdom. God, would we seek that from you? Lord, for all of us, would we behold your glory today? We ask these things in your name. Amen.